It was 1938 when off the coast of the United States a storm was brewing. Most of the forecasters said that it would be staying in the Atlantic. One junior intern meteorologist in Connecticut said that he thought there was actually a high pressure farther out in the Atlantic and combined with a high pressure over some of New England, this would force it to make landfall some around, somewhere around Connecticut or New York. But nobody paid much attention to him. Out in the Atlantic, of course, with the rather primitive equipment that we had at the time, we didn't realize what was going on, but this hurricane was building steam. And um, I believe it was September 20, um, or 21st, when a farmer from uh, Connecticut received a package in the mail containing a barometer that he had ordered from a catalog. And we took out that barometer from its package, he looked at it, and instantly he knew something was wrong. They had sent him a defective barometer. Try as he could, tapping it and hitting it and shaking it, he couldn't get the mercury to come out of the bulb. And he thought, they sent me a wrong thermometer, or barometer. And so he went and packaged it back up and took it to the post office to return it to the company he had bought it from. Before he made it back to his house, his house had blown into the sea. This hurricane still stands on record as the fastest forward speed of any storm to hit the United States. Now, we've had, seen some hurricanes with faster winds, but the storm itself usually travels 15 or 20 miles an hour. This storm was traveling 70 miles an hour. In fact, that morning, Catherine Hepburn, some of you would know that name, was near her vacation home in New, well, in Connecticut, but on Long Island Sound, it was sunny in the morning and she was swimming, enjoying a nice fall day, when, to her surprise, the sky became dark and the storm began blowing and the waves began rising. And she made her way to, back to her house. She wrote of the experience, our house our house for 25 years were all gone. It was something devastating and unreal, like the beginning of the world or the end of it. And I slogged and sloshed, crawled through ditches and hung on to keep going somehow, got drenched and bruised and scratched, completely bedraggled, finally got to where there was a working phone and called Dad. The hurricane of 1838 was sometimes called the Yankee Clipper, the Long Island Express, or simply the Great Hurricane of 1838. It became a Category 5 hurricane on the hurricane scale and made landfall as a Category 3. It was estimated to have killed around 800 people and caused over 57,000 homes to be completely destroyed or heavily damaged. It was a loss of $306 million in 1938, which in today's money, 2013, would be about $4.7 billion dollars. 
And while Hurricane Sandy eclipsed that as far as the cost of damage, it was not nearly as much of a hurricane. It's just the coast wasn't so developed as it is today. It blew ships out of the sea and trains off of their tracks. The, the damage along the entire seacoast was tremendous. It was a hurricane that would be remembered for many, many years. You know, as we think of that barometer, we begin to realize that the Yankee farmer actually had a working barometer. He just didn't believe the atmospheric pressure should be that extreme. He didn't trust it because he looked outside and it was sunny. He thought that everything was going well, and the barometer must be defective. You know, there's sometimes when we in our Christian life are tempted to trust what we perceive or what we think or how we feel. You understand what I'm saying? We see reality, we sense reality, culture defines reality, and yet something else is described in God's Word. How hard it is for us to trust God's Word instead of what we can see and think we know to be reality. Turn with me back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. We're talking today about righteousness by faith in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we've been talking about, or Romans, we've been, we've been, Paul's been explaining the, the, uh, the whole plan of salvation. And he uses an illustration in Romans 4 that he, that he takes from Genesis chapter 15. So we're going to go back to Genesis, and we're going to look at this story that Paul borrows from heavily in Genesis chapter 15. You remember in chapter 3 of Romans, um, a few weeks ago we were looking at that passage, and Paul actually describes in Romans chapter 3, he describes that the, there is a righteousness by faith which is spoken of by the law and the prophets. Remember that? The righteousness by faith, the grace and the righteousness of Christ is actually not just a New Testament thing. And Paul alludes to that in Romans chapter 3. The law and the prophets is the Old Testament. And Paul says, look, the grace, salvation by grace through faith, righteousness by faith through, uh, through the cross of Christ is taught in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And this may be one of the passages that he's referring to in chapter 3 because it's one that he certainly comes to in chapter 4. Notice with me in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. His servant was the one that would take his belongings. His will was made out to a, well, he was a believer, Eliezer, but he wasn't, he wasn't of God's people. He was, he was from Damascus. And Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my, uh, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord, verse 4, came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside, verse 5, and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. 
Now this was spoken to Abraham, who, who was an old man. He was getting up in years, and he was, he was still childless. He and Sarah had not been able to conceive. And, and I can imagine him going out on a dark night talking with God. Have you ever been out under the stars talking with God? There's something about a clear night where the humidity is low and, and, and the stars are so visible and you're in a prominent place where you can see 180 degrees of, of sky from horizon to horizon. And when you just see the magnitude of creation, you feel very, very small. And I can just imagine this is where Abraham was on that night. There in, in, as he was out in that desert, uh, perhaps in a place where he could see very clearly and the stars were just like milk in the sky. And he's having this conversation with God and he's asking God why he hasn't blessed him with children. It may not be the prayer that all of us have had, but we've all perhaps had those kinds of prayers. Why, God? Can't you just give me this one thing that I need? And Abraham is in that conversation with God out under the starry heavens, and, and God says, look. Look up at the stars. Look up and see how many they are. Count them. Go ahead and try. Your, your heir will not be one who was born as a servant in your house. Your heir will be one of your own your own descendant, and your descendants, God said, would be as the stars of the sky. Now, I want to tell you that Abraham knew one thing. Abraham knew that was impossible. Abraham knew that, that he and Sarah just weren't having kids. He was an old man. But the Bible doesn't end there. The Bible says in the next verse, chapter 15 and verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for, what does it say? He believed the Lord, and it accounted him to him for righteousness. You see, my friends, God planned to do something great with Abraham. God had a purpose for calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees, where his own family and friends would have been a corrupting influence. God called him out into a land where he would live as a stranger. And I can tell you that as I've studied the life of Abraham, I have been very impressed that Abraham was able to live a life of singular fidelity to God and to his word, even though there was nobody else that he knew on the face of the planet that shared his convictions. Have you noticed that about Abraham? Even Sarah, even Sarah did not have the same walk with God that Abraham had, his own wife. If you look at the story, for example, Genesis chapter 20, when God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go and offer him as an offering on Mount Moriah. Abraham did not dare awaken Sarah. But he left. Because Sarah, Sarah didn't have that closeness with the God of the universe that he had. Abraham, and I don't say this to disparage Sarah, all I'm saying is that Abraham had gone out by faith from Ur of the Chaldees, not even knowing where he was going, trusting God would guide him. Abraham had had opportunity after opportunity to build faith and to know that God would, would lead him 
in a trustworthy manner. And now God is giving him another opportunity. He's, going to, he's telling him, I'm going to make your seed great. I'm going to, I'm going to make you, of you a great nation. Your descendants will bless all nations. And he's going to give him a sign that would separate him from the rest of the world, the sign of circumcision. But I want you to see here that even before Abraham obeyed God in, in accepting that sign, even before he had this ceremony where he obeyed and took a, a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon and he had this ceremony in obedience, even before Abraham did any of those things, the Bible says he simply believed God. And God accounted it to him for what? For righteousness. You see, how did Abraham, how was it that Abraham was accounted righteous? Was it because he obeyed and therefore God said, okay, I see you're serious, now you're obeying? Is that, is that how it happened? Is it because he did something that convinced God or, or earned God's righteousness? No, not at all. He simply believed God. Well, that's easy enough. Oh, but it isn't. You see, it's easy for us to believe things when they're self-evident. Are you with me? It's easy for us to believe God when He promises to do something that we could do anyway. Right? It's easy to believe God when what God has said is not in the realm of the impossible. But when God says something that seems humanly impossible, there are few that believe Him. Because to do so requires faith. Oh, today, I want us to explore more this subject. I want you to turn with me now to Romans chapter 4. We'll be spending most of our time here, the few minutes we have together in Romans chapter 4. We'll uh, keep a, th a finger there or a thumb there or a piece of paper there, because we'll be coming back to it a number of times. But Abraham, it says in verse uh, 1 of Romans chapter 4, what shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul here is quoting, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Let me put it this way. If you work for a, in your job for 40 hours a week, you get paid for 40 hours a week, right? If you work 50 hours a week, you get paid for 50 hours a week, at least if you're on an hourly basis, right? But if your employer were to choose to pay you for 50 hours, even though you worked 40 hours, that would not be something that he owed you, right? That would be a gift. It would be something you didn't deserve, which is the definition of grace. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor, right? And so, so Abraham, it says, received this righteousness... Not because of his works. If he had received them because of works, it would not be because of grace, but because of debt. God would owe it to him. But he received it by grace, not because of works, but because he simply believed. 
And he makes, this, he makes this illustration. This was a very poignant illustration for the Jews. You have to understand, these are Abraham's descendants. These are the ones that are still rigidly holding on to obedience of the law that Abraham, or the rules that Abraham had, had originated, especially such things as circumcision. You know, you had to be circumcised. And Paul is dealing now with Gentiles coming into the church. And the Gentiles, some of whom are uncircumcised, the Jews wanted to make circumcised because you had to be circumcised. You couldn't be saved if you weren't circumcised. And the, the, the argument that Paul is making is simply this. When was Abraham accounted righteous? It was not when he was circumcised, but before when he simply believes. Salvation is by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul says it very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. And so, Paul in Romans chapter 4 is trying to argue that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. And he was the father of the faithful. So we too are justified. We are saved apart from the works of the law. We are saved not by obedience. We are saved by grace. Amen? We are saved by the cross of Jesus Christ. By His blood. By His sacrifice by His ministry now in our behalf. Notice with me in verse 13, Romans chapter 14 and verse 13. For the promise that He would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law or through obedience, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of none effect. Because the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those that are of the law, the circumcised, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham became known as the father of the faithful because of his belief in God. He believed God could do the impossible. Skip down to verse 18. Who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was written, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not think about those things. He didn't dwell upon the impossibilities. He dwelt upon the promise. And it says in verse 20, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what He had promised, He was able also to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to Him for righteousness. Being fully persuaded that what God had promised, He was able also to perform. I want us to just think this morning about this experience of Abraham. I think it's an experience that God would want us to have today. 
And as I think about the components of Abraham's righteousness by faith, I realize that sometimes it's, well, sometimes we just don't experience it. Sometimes we, we believe God when it seems humanly feasible. But do we really believe that God is able to work miracles, miracles in our lives? And I'm not talking about, you know, there can be all kinds of miracles God can make, providing for our needs, putting food in our cupboards or gas in our tanks. The greatest miracle is that God could change a sinner like me. Do you realize many Christians don't believe that? They don't believe that God could really change their heart. I mean, they're not bad people, don't get me wrong. They go to church and they believe a lot of things, but they don't believe that God could actually recreate a new heart in them and make them somebody they're not. And so you hear the excuses. It's just the way I am. It's my personality. It's the way I've always been. It's my family. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. And don't get me wrong. If you think you're perfect, there's something wrong. Okay, there's, there's a problem. But somehow, sometime, there ought to be something in our life that is impossible for us to accomplish that we depend upon God to do or else we have not yet experienced righteousness by faith. If it's just what I can do, how I can improve myself, how the self-help and, and all the different methods and, and thoughts and everything else that I can do, there's a problem. Because I've got, the bad news is, while I can improve myself and change myself, I cannot make myself a new creature. But God promises to do that. Do we believe it? Do we experience miracles in our lives? Faith, I would propose to you today, is believing God's Word even when He promises the impossible. Theologians can cavil and contradict, but if God's Word is clear, God is always faithful. Now, faith takes God at His Word. Faith is believing God's Word even when I feel otherwise. You know, there are times in my life when I've been very discouraged. And it seemed as though, according to my feelings, I would never be able to be saved in God's kingdom. According to my feelings, I would never overcome where God wanted me to overcome. I would never, I would never be any, any different than I, than I found myself every day. My human nature just seemed to be overwhelming. and There are times when I just got discouraged, and that's when we need faith. When we're discouraged, when, when God's Word says something that we don't feel, we need faith. God's Word says to me, if we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. And so even though I may not feel forgiven, even though I may feel like the worst sinner, by faith 
I accept God's word because God's word has to be of greater credibility in my life than even how I feel. God's word is the barometer, my friends, that we live by. Not what we see out there in the sky. Not what we feel in our bones or in our hearts. God's word is the barometer that tells us how to live our lives. And faith is believing God's word, even when I feel otherwise. So sometimes I'm discouraged. God's word says, don't be discouraged. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. Don't be discouraged. Therefore, he says, uh, those the Father sends me will come to me, and he that comes to me, Jesus says in John 6, I will for no reason and no wise cast out. If we come to Jesus, friends, those who believe in him, First John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, those, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. These promises of Scripture are for you, they're for me. Amen? And we can believe them. They must be our barometer. Now, sometimes we're discouraged. We need those scriptures. Sometimes we're not discouraged. Sometimes we feel like we're on top of the world when everything is going well. You know, we still need our barometers. Because the Bible says, Paul said to the Corinthians, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So sometimes I need the word of God to keep me trusting in God's ability to save me when I don't feel like I could be saved. Other times I need God's word, the barometer, keeping me in trusting that I am not worthy myself and that no matter how many things I can do right, I still need a Savior. But on every, on each, in, in both circumstances, I need the barometer of God's word. I need to be anchored in the word of God. Faith is believing God's word even when he promises the, pro the impossible. Faith is believing God's word even when I feel otherwise. Righteousness by faith is obeying, not so that God will do what he has promised, but because he has done what he has promised. I want us to be very clear on that point. The faith that brings justification is not depend first upon works, but neither is it found without works. It's not found with, without obedience. Because once we have been saved by the grace of God, we can't stop reading first in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created. What does that sound like? Does that sound like divine power? Does that sound like impossible for me to do? Yes. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. There's a miracle that takes place in our lives. Something that you and I cannot do for ourselves. And, and Beloved, just bear with me here. I want to underscore this. If we're coming to church, and if our religion is things that we can do for ourselves, our religion is a religion of works. I don't care what your theology is. I don't care how much you don't believe in legalism. If your religion is composed of things you can do for yourself, it's not the miracle that God wants it to be. He says, 
I will take out the stony heart out of your flesh, and I'll put in a new heart, a heart of flesh. That's, that's a miracle. And we need miracles. I need miracles in my daily life. And so righteousness by faith is obeying, not so that God will do what He has promised, but because He has done what He has promised. So when I feel as though I am not forgivable, when I feel that my sins are too many and too great and my heart is too hardened, when I become discouraged, faith grasps the promises of God and believes that He is able to forgive, He is able to save, because He's a greater Savior than I am a sinner. He is a, his grace is greater than all my sin. Faith grasps that and doesn't wait until it feels that it is, it is, it is reality. But faith says, I'm going to act as though it is true, whether I feel it or not, because God's Word is always true. Let me make it a little simpler for you. I'll use maybe not a sin salvation illustration, but I think it's just as, just as, uh, just as applicable. Suppose some days, this isn't just supposing, this is real. Some days I wake up and I'm not in a good mood. Anyone here ever had that experience? Get up on the wrong side of bed? Your mother didn't tell you to put your bed against the wall so you'd always get up on the right side? Uh, but no, you get up on the wrong side of bed and, and you just feel angry at the world. Anything that crosses you is bound for extinction, you know? It's just one of those days... But what is God's will for our lives? What does Paul say in Philippians 4, verse 4? Rejoice in the Lord on the days you feel good. Is that what he says? He says rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice all the time. And when you're finished, keep rejoicing. That's what Paul's saying. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Well, this day is not a good day for me to rejoice, so I don't have to rejoice, right? What is God's will? God's will is, God's word says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, if I give myself to God, right, I need a miracle every day. It's a new day, a new miracle is needed. And as I give myself to God, we, I become His workmanship again, created, I love the word picture, created in Christ Jesus. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, Paul says, right? That's where we want to be. We want to be in Christ. All the promises of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, I believe it is, all the promises of God in Him are yea and amen. When you're in Christ, every promise in the Word of God is yours. You can experience it, even if it takes a miracle. Because that's what God's Word is. It's, it is creative. So, I, I, I give myself to God, even on the days I don't feel good, and I choose, because I've given my life to Him, I choose to put a smile on my face. Now, some people are going to say to me, that is hypocrisy. I ought to just let the world know how I feel. I don't want to be one of those churchy hypocrites. I want to be transparent. Say it like it is. 
I really don't believe it's hypocrisy, friends, to, to act as though God is able to do what he's promised to do. I call it faith. Some may call it hypocrisy. I call it faith. Because as I, as I put a smile on my face and I do what I don't feel like doing because my faith, I, God's word says I'm a new creature. And even if I don't feel happy, just like I didn't feel forgiven, I can live by faith. Do you know what happens? When, when you put a smile on your face, you begin whistling, begin whistling a tune or singing a song and, and saying kind words to other people. Do you know what happens? It won't take very long before your feelings of uh, whatever it is, I don't know how to describe those feelings, before that becomes eclipsed by the true joy of the Lord in your heart. And faith has gotten the victory. See, friends, the problem is we don't recognize these opportunities for what they are. We don't, we don't see these are simply opportunities for faith to be developed in me. And so we let them pass by and our faith just becomes more and more anemic and weak. We should praise God when we wake up on the wrong side of bed. Because this is a chance for faith to gain the victory over the enemy. That's why James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations, knowing that the trial of your faith works patience. Instead, what do we do? We fall into temptation, we grumble, we complain. We vent, we put off here, we, we, we let the world know we're angry at it. And we've missed our opportunity to live by faith. Let me say this another way. When you wake up and you stretch and you yawn and the sun's coming in the window and the birds are singing and the air's fresh like it is today and the world just seems to be smiling at every turn and you feel on top of the world, you have no opportunity to exercise faith. To rejoice in the Lord in those days is not a miracle. Are you with me? It's not. I, I know what I'm talking about. Some days on my own, I can just be happy. The miracle comes when God's word says what seems impossible. Do we believe that God is able to do the impossible Still, today. I want miracles. If I want to experience those miracles, you and I, we have got to start recognizing the opportunities God gives us to have miracles and allow those miracles to happen in our lives. Oh, righteousness by faith is obeying even when I don't feel like obeying. I don't believe it's hypocrisy at all. Not if first I have believed. Not if first I have, I have asked God to make me a new creature in Christ Jesus. Some people say, well, you know, when you feel like, when you can't help but believe, obey, then you should obey. Listen, if God's word says it, I want to obey it because I'm a child of the King. 
He saved my life. Do you understand what I said? Past tense. I'm not saying he's going to, so I'm going to obey him. Or he, I'm hoping he will, so I'm going to obey him. He is my Savior and Lord. It is my joy to obey him. Jesus said it simply. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. And it's by faith sometimes. Listen, there's a lot of people who believe in a religion of righteousness by feelings. I'm, I'm, am I telling the truth? There's a lot of people, they don't, they're, not, they're, they're well-meaning, and I've been there many times. I've caught myself. I need this reminder over and over and over again. It's not righteousness to, by faith to do what's right when you feel like doing what's right. It's righteousness by faith when you don't feel like doing what's right. You give your heart to Jesus and do it because he asked you to. And he'll take care of your heart. You can't, a leopard can't change his spots or Ethiopian his skin. You can't change your heart, but God can change it. And if you give it to him and act as if he will, he will. He will. Righteousness by faith is obeying, even when I don't feel like obeying. So what are the challenges? What are the obstacles to experiencing righteousness by faith? The first, I think, is a diminished belief in God's word. And it's no wonder that in today's society, you are seeing constant barrage of attacks against the credibility of God's word from inside Christianity as well as from outside Christianity. There's all kinds of new ideas about inspiration. You have all kinds of ideas. Uh, you know, there's even going so far as to say Christians, well, they're sort of Christians, they, they, but it's a huge movement within Christianity becoming very popular. The idea is that God's Word is not inspired, like the thoughts are not inspired, the words are not inspired, the ideas are not inspired. It was the people who were inspired. And they had encounters with God. And so revelation is, uh, or, or inspiration is an encounter with God. It's an experience. And these people, these men and women in the Bible who had had these experiences, they recorded in their own faulty human language what those experiences were. But guess what? We're supposed to have those same types of experiences and encounters with God. And where this leads in Christianity is the idea, basically, that my experience is just as valid as the authority of the ideas of Scripture. Now, do you see how that absolutely contradicts righteousness by faith? It bases my experience as the, as the foundation instead of God's Word as the foundation. The Bible is being attacked on all sides, and perhaps the devil's most effective attack within the church has been just to keep us from reading it. Oh, we believe it. But do we know what it tells us for today? We need God's Word. Bible says, David says, Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you want to exercise faith, the Bible tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Oh, we need the Word of God in our hearts and in our lives today. I would propose to you that we can trust God even above our very senses. I'm reminded of the, the passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Paul, Peter is describing how he knows that he did not follow cunningly devised fables. And he says in, in 1 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, and beginning with verse 16, he says this, he says, 
For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we, Peter says, I was there. I, we heard this voice. We heard the voice of God from heaven. Now, would that be faith building? Would you believe God existed if you heard Him speaking, rumbling from horizon to horizon, the voice of God like many waters? And here he says, For we heard that verse, we heard His voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. In verse 19, the King James says, But we have also a more sure word of prophecy. What Peter is trying to say here is, look, as in faith affirming as it was to be there and hear the voice from heaven rumbling through the sky, we have something even more reliable than what we hear or what we see. We have the prophetic word. We have the word of God. Your senses might even fool you, my friends, but God's word is true. The sky might be clear. The barometer doesn't lie. God's Word, we can trust it with our very lives. Now, how many of you have no, nothing but faith, nothing but belief in your heart, in your mind? If we're honest with ourselves, in every single mind, there is an element of disbelief. I sometimes doubt. And that's why I love the story that's found in Luke chapter 9. That's actually found in Mark chapter 9 as well. Both of them the story of the, the, the father who brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples. Remember? In fact, it's right after the transfiguration on the mount that Peter was just talking about. Jesus comes down from the mount with Peter, James, and John, and, and there's his father, this distraught father. He says, look, I've brought my son to your disciples. They can't heal him. He's possessed with a demon. He throws himself into the water. He throws himself into the fire. He's going to kill himself. They couldn't help him and when the Father sees Jesus coming down the mountain, the Jesus that he had heard about, the Jesus that people had said could heal him, when he looked at Jesus, his senses said, if these guys can't help him, he certainly can't help him. He looked tired. He had simple, plain clothes. He had dusty feet with plain, simple sandals, no name, brand, anything. Isaiah says, I don't, we don't know exactly how Jesus looked, but Isaiah says there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. He didn't look physically like a king. He certainly didn't look like God. And the Father sees Jesus coming, and <laughs> they couldn't do it. The Father says to Jesus, if you can help my son, please do something. And Jesus caught that first word. Only two letters. If. And the response given, I believe it's in Luke chapter 9, the response Jesus gives is, if, in return. If you can believe, all things are possible to those who believe. Now, let me pause. I don't want you to lose the power of this story, but let me pause for just a minute. Is faith about believing before we see it or after we see it? Before. 
anything can, anyone can believe a miracle takes place after it's taken place. In other words, faith is not about us experimenting and experiencing. It's about us believing so that we can experience. Does that make sense? If you can believe, all things are possible to those who believe. And like a, like a flash, the Holy Spirit went through that Father's mind and illuminated those dark chambers of doubt and unbelief. And he realized that because he was sitting there thinking, this man couldn't help me. Because he had so much unbelief and doubt and distrust in his heart and in his mind, his son might perish. And he cast himself at the, at the feet of Jesus and he said, Lord, I believe. And then he realized that wasn't quite true. Help thou mine unbelief. In other words, I'm choosing to believe. You're going to have to deal with the parts of my heart that don't believe. And that's all Jesus needed. One of my favorite books, Desire of Ages, page 494, it says, Those who pray this prayer can never perish. Never. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. In our mind, in every mind, I would dare say, there is both belief and doubt. You and I have the power of choice, willpower given to us by God to choose to believe and ask God to deal with the unbelief. And it's after this that we have Jesus giving this example. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, and I would like to say, oh, this is just another sermon, but I would like to say that if, you're, uh, if your faith is the size of a mustard seed and your unbelief is the size of the mountain, if you pray that prayer, Lord, I believe, the little mustard seed of faith that I've got, I believe your word is for me. I believe you can change my heart. I believe you can work a miracle in my life and, and save me in your kingdom. Even if it's just a mustard seed and your unbelief in your heart is like a mountain, that mustard seed's all you need. That's all God needs. And he will deal with the mountain. You simply exercise the mustard seed. There's faith and unbelief in every heart, friends, but we can choose which we will allow to rule our will. We can choose faith as his father did. Another challenge to righteousness by faith is unfounded confidence in ourselves. There are many people who do not experience righteousness by faith simply because they're good people. Maybe you've read the book. It was one of the business books of the year a few years back called Good to Great. Um, the basic premise of the book is that many companies do not become great because they're good. And they accept status quo because they're good. Whereas the great companies aren't satisfied with just being good. And that's why they become great. And for many Christians, I don't mean to be sacrilegious about using a business illustration, but, but for many Christians today, the reason they will never experience righteousness by faith is because they're good people. And it never crossed their mind that they needed a miracle. They can behave just fine in public. They can come to church and do the right things and say the right words and dress the right way. And why would I need a miracle? And many people are living a life without miracles because they're good people. 
And the Bible tells me, my barometer says, we studied it a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 3, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. We're none, none of us are righteous. And all of our righteousnesses that we're proud of are like filthy rags. Right? Every single one of us needs a miracle of divine grace. Another challenge to righteousness by faith is unfounded discouragement about ourselves. John 6, 37, I referred to that earlier. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will, he says, I will never cast out. No matter how bad I am, Jesus is more than able to save me. And friend of mine today, no matter how discouraged you may at times feel, no one who wants to be saved is beyond the reach of God's mighty arm. He is still able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by Him. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, no exceptions, believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And if God gave us His only Son, He spared not His only Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? If God was willing to give His only begotten Son, do you think He's going to stop at any other gift that you need? No. Listen, if you are in Christ, if you commit your life to Him, you give your life to Him, He would do anything that Anything divinely possible, which is anything, anything he needs to do in order for you to be saved in his kingdom. He would empty every angel out of, out of heaven if he had to, to come to your aid. He will do whatever it takes. And we know it because he already gave us the greatest gift of all in Jesus. Romans chapter 8, read those promises. For if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us everything we need? And so Paul says, I'm persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Oh, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for that good news of God's word. We need to be in the word, friends. Whether we're discouraged or whether we're too encouraged, it's the word that we need to live by. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And righteousness by faith is God working in us his righteousness as we submit our minds to him, to his cross, and to his word. The barometer wasn't broken, friends. The farmer sent it back thinking it wasn't broken because he trusted his senses. There was no way it could be right. And I would propose to you today that we need to get reconnected with our barometers and allow God, allow God to begin working miracles. Miracles. Something beyond our own abilities. That's what I want to experience. How about you? I want my eyes to not be on my weakness, but on Jesus. I want my heart to not be vacillating like this waves of the sea, but to be solid, 
built on the rock of God's Word. So that how I feel may change from day to day, but how God lives through me is always the same. That's what I want. It's not what I have. I need a new miracle every day. I need a, I need a heart transplant every day. I need conversion every day. And I need to recognize the opportunities God gives me to live by faith instead of complaining about them. Is that what you would like today as well? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, Abraham became known as the father of the faithful because he simply believed that you were able to do what you'd promised to do. Even though it was an absolute miracle, he believed and he trusted. Lord, today, you know the hearts of your people gathered here. I don't know what they may be going through. I don't know whether they're discouraged or, or maybe they're they're really good people, and they've, they've been too encouraged. I don't know, but you know, Lord. You know our hearts. And I just want to pray for each one of us that in the quietness of the sanctuary, that you might speak to our hearts and invite us to simply trust you, to simply believe that you are our Savior. Or there's someone here who wants to make that decision, who wants to call out to you in their hearts this morning. Lord, I just pray that you'll hear their prayer, hear their cry. And Lord, when we leave here today, I just pray that each and every one of us, without an exception, might leave knowing that we have been created a new creature in Christ Jesus and expecting miracles to happen depending not upon our own ability to be good, but upon your divine power to save to the uttermost. We can't do it of ourselves. We need Jesus. We need his blood. We need his power. We need to stay in his word. Thank you, Lord, for being such a savior. Thank you for having such power. Thank you for giving us examples in the Bible of men like Abraham who did believe. Thank you also for examples of men like the Father who prayed, Lord, I believe, but you help my unbelief. That's our prayer today as well, Father. We want you to take our hearts, and we believe, we, we trust you to deal with the unbelief. Help us to love one another as you have said. Help us to live this week as you have said. Not so that you will love us, but because you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org